0: This is Transforming Culture, an NBC podcast. to our next episode of Transforming Culture. We are now officially more than halfway through our first season, and we are so excited that we have the chance to share these conversations with all of you. My name is Luke LaRock, and I'm the Director of Ministry here at Muskoka Bible Center. And this week, we're looking at race and color in church history, a topic that I was glad to have on our roster for this summer. While we think a lot about racism in modern culture, from the slave trade forward, I think it was an incredibly wise decision on the part of our speaker, Dr. Michael Haken, to go right back to the beginning and talk about how race was an important conversation even in the early church. His insights brought the book of Acts to life for me in a whole new way. It wasn't exactly what I was expecting when we invited him to speak, but it was just what we needed." I'm also, on a personal level, very grateful that Dr. Haken was willing to go up to three hours to talk about this, but ultimately got it down to a 40-minute conversation. Dr. Michael Haken is on the core faculty of Heritage College and Seminary and as professor of church history and also serves as professor and chair of church history at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and director of the Andrew Fuller Center for Baptist Studies at Southern Seminary. He is married to Allison and they are members of West Highland Baptist Church in Hamilton, Ontario. He is a big believer in helping local churches develop an appreciation of the significance of church history for their churches, and to this end he has written or edited nearly a dozen local church histories. He's also written widely on fourth century Christianity in the Roman Imperium and 18th century British Baptists, in particular the life and ministry of Andrew Fuller and his circle of friends that included William Carey. Dr. Haken would be the first person to tell you that he loves to share his deep love of church history. And I think he does a fantastic job of weaving the story of scripture and church history into his talk about race and color. I hope you enjoy.
1: So first uh, off, uh, two kind of uh, explanatory ideas or uh, matters. Um, this is a really big topic, and I've spent a lot of time over the years uh, exploring particularly one aspect of it, that which relates to the 18th century and the development of what is known as the slave trade and slavery in the Western world. and. Um, <clears throat> When I was asked to think about this issue, uh, I thought initially, you know, I need about two or three hours (laughs) uh, to go back and talk about the way in which uh, racism as we know it in the West has roots going back into the 16th and 17th centuries. When the Europeans, uh, French, Portuguese, Spanish, Dutch, and the various British peoples uh, broke out of the Muslim encirclement of Europe and began to discover a new world. They began to uh, plant colonies here in uh, this side of the Atlantic in both North and South America, encountered the indigenous people, but also began to go much further afield, discovering various parts of Africa, India, and other parts of Asia. And as they began to plant colonies, particularly in the New World, places like the Bahamas and Trinidad and Tobago and Jamaica, they found them rich sources of all kinds of products that they didn't have back in Europe. For instance, the sweetest thing that Europeans had prior to the 16th century was honey. And then there's the discovery of sugar and sugar plantations. And the growing of sugar in the Caribbean or the growing of cotton or the growing of indigo plants. Indigo is very important for creating the color blue. Now, this is an interesting sidelight. Uh, Prior to the Reformation probably the favorite color of Europeans was red But blue blue was always very expensive and suddenly now you've got this possibility of growing indigo plants Which are a natural way of creating the color blue and blue will become a fairly dominant product in cloth and so on but all of that took enormous labor And initially, uh, thinking about one group, the British, the British tried to convince the Irish, uh, why don't you go over and labor in these various plantations? And uh, my mother was Irish, uh, white as you all get out, no melanin, uh, always burned in the sun, and it wasn't going to work. And Britain found herself drawn into this iniquitous abomination, which we call the slave trade. And it was justifiable, that is, the, the raiding of West Africa by European, various European nations, the setting up of forts, the using of African... Already, uh, slavery was part of the African world, but not in the way that the Europeans would develop it, to genocidal uh, dimensions. Um, and um, the way it was justified was an overt or even implicit racism, that becomes part and parcel of European thinking. Now, to go into all that would take a, a fair amount of time. So when I was initially asked to do this subject, I said, okay, I need two hours. I'm serious. I need, I need an hour to spend talking about that, about why is it that there is, in Western culture, there is racism in Western culture of various, ele- various capacities. And I would need to go into all of that background and then talk about the way it's developed in the last 100 years or so. And it's huge. I just bought, for instance, this book. I'm not recommending this book to buy. Um, It runs to 1,000 pages. Uh, American Founders, How Enslaved People Expanded American Ideals. It's just a massive study. Of American slavery, one facet of what I've been talking about. and this is an enormous subject. This is probably one of — I probably have about a 100 books on this whole subject, because it also touches on another area in which I'm deeply involved in, and that is the way evangelicals fought tooth and nail at the end of the 18th century, the beginning of the 19th century, to abolish slavery in the British Empire. And they did so on the basis of biblical ideas that every human being, regardless of the color of his or her skin, is made in the image of God. And it is, it is an ab- it is a, 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 abomination before a holy God to hold men and women in such, such a dire condition. So uh, I'm not going to go into any of that. That's just a very quick snapshot, okay? Uh, Just to let you know that this is a massive subject. The other, and I don't want to get into this in great detail either, is that in my own life, uh, if you look at me, I look like a white European. I've got an Irish mother, and I have to some degree her coloring. But uh, uh, my birth name was Azad Michael Anthony Hakim. And uh, I grew up with a father who was Kurdish, Muslim background. Married my mother, embraced Catholicism. I was raised Irish Catholic with a Muslim name in England in the 50s and 60s. I remember as a young child going to school, and they read the roster, and the teacher hits Azad. I'm not even sure she said it right. It means freedom, what my father felt when he left Iraq and came to Britain, what kind of name is that? And I didn't realize it, but my father spent a lifetime trying to fit into Western culture. I understand, to some degree, the elements of racism, because I experienced some of that in England. And I don't know what kind of generated this, but in my second year in high school, I was always known in high school as Arab, uh, which would have horrified my father. We're Kurdish not arabs we're kurdish but in somewhere in my second in grade 10 there were two students who used the n word all year of me and so i've experienced that's only a very little it gave me before i became a christian a deep seated hatred of discrimination on the basis of color or race that's just a little bit that's explanatory where i'm coming from um this is An an, an issue that I've spent a lot of time as a historian looking at. But it's also an existential issue for me. But that's not really what I want to focus on tonight. What I want to focus on tonight, what does the Bible say about all of this? First of all, the Bible doesn't talk about race. Might surprise you. But the Bible talks about ethnos or ethnoi, peoples. We won't go to it, but if you go to the book of Genesis... And go to Genesis 10, where it has the list of nations. These are various people groups who are not identified by their facial characteristics or their skin color. They're identified by where they live and the language they speak. And that's the way the Bible deals with the differences between men and women. It doesn't deal with the way race has developed as a Western concept, probably in the last you know, three, four hundred years. Incidentally, probably at the very same time of European expansion into the rest of the world. It's a basic assumption of the Bible that all human beings come from one couple. We have some evangelicals today who argue, you know, the book of Genesis doesn't give us scientific data, and uh, the idea that there an Adam and Eve, well, maybe we can... We can kind of play with that. Maybe some evangelicals are arguing for an, an idea of a theistic evolution. And maybe there were a number of hominids back there. And God chose a couple maybe. And No, no. The Bible is quite clear that we all come from Adam and Eve. Genesis chapter 3. You don't necessarily need to go to all these verses. I've got quite a few. But in Genesis chapter 3 verse 20, this is where we begin In thinking about this issue that we call racism. Genesis 3 verse 20. The man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all who live. We all come from Eve. We have a mother back there, uh, Eve. She is the mother of all the living. That is affirmed, clearly affirmed in the New Testament. Acts 17 verse 26. This is Paul's speech on Mars Hill or the Areopagus. Paul says, from one ancestor, one ancestor, Adam and Eve, obviously, he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth. He allotted the times of their existence, the boundaries of the places where they would live. And so the Bible assumes all of us, whatever our racial, whatever, if you want to use that term, distinctives, our skin coloring facial characteristics, we all ultimately go back to Adam and Eve. The entirety of the diversity of humanity was embodied in his DNA and hers. In fact, Paul assumes that even his pagan hearers believe this. Acts 17 again, he quotes a Stoic philosopher and he says, For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, he's speaking to two philosophical groupings, the Stoics and the Epicureans, very, very different in their thinking. Um, And he quotes, we too are his offspring. And he's quoting there from a man named Cleanthes in a thing called the Hymn to Zeus. (laughs) It's a a pagan text. And Paul says it, Paul must have read that at some point. And what he's saying is, even you believe this. It's not just us Jews. It's even you Greeks believe that we all come from one ancestor. So that's where we begin. We have a common creaturehood. We are all made, and we could develop this at length, in the image of God, every human being. We are common, we have a common creaturehood, and we have a common sinnerhood. We're all sinners. Adam and Eve disobeyed, and we all fell in them or in Him. Uh, Both of them are, they're both blamed, right? Romans 5, Adam's blamed. We're going to read that in a minute, Romans 5, 12 to 19. But in 1 Timothy 2, Eve is also blamed. Romans 5, verses 12 to 19. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's why we have to believe in an Adam. Paul does. He accounts for the presence of human sin in every human being he had ever met through the fact that Adam fell. And theologians have spent generations. I'm not saying this is not an important subject. We're not going to go into it. How did we fall in Adam? Was he our representative? Were we somehow physically in him? Whatever that case is, just as sin came into the world through one man, death came through sin, and so death spread to all because all have sinned. Sin was indeed in the world before the law, but sin is not reckoned when there is no law. Yet death exercised dominion over Adam to Moses, even those whose sins were not like the transgression of Adam, who is a type of the one Who was to come. By one man's trespass, death has entered the entire world. Through one man's trespass, we are now all under condemnation. All of us. We're on an equal level. The idea that somehow one people group, be it Europeans in their thinking about Western supremacy. And we're by by the way, we're not the only people who think along those lines. You know, your European culture is not the only. Uh, sort of people who think themselves superior. The Romans thought themselves superior to everybody because they didn't speak Latin the way they did. The Jews thought themselves superior to everybody else. There's a famous rabbinic uh, statement about the end of the world in which uh, Abraham is going to stand at the mouth of hell. And as men and women are being processed, if they're Jewish, he'll shunt them aside to heaven the goyim will all go in. There's one rabbi. Again, these, these sayings come down to us. We have no idea how representative they are of all Jewish leaders. But there was one rabbi asked, why did God create Gentiles? Like, okay, we're the chosen people. Why on earth did he create Gentiles? Because he needed to fuel hell. You know, Europeans are not the only people who've developed racist attitudes. Uh, You just look at throughout the world the way in which people view others. But no, we are all, we are all under condemnation. We have one creator. Every human being you have ever met, whatever their mental capacity, whatever their physical state, they are all made in the image of God. But they're all sinners. You have not met one human being who's not a sinner. It's not easy to do, but you know, when you have little children, you know, but he and gahs and the beauty of the child. You ever read, you, if you want to see a different perspective, read Augustine in book two, I think it's book two of the confessions. And he talks about how, you know, he says, I was a sinner from birth. He says, when I see little babies, what I think of is miniature sinners. But it's true, isn't it? You just give the little child long enough and any of you have got But children, you know how that works out. We are all sinners together. Romans 3:9, both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Here's Paul's testimony in Philippians 3, verses 4 and 5. If anyone thinks he has confident, he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews. Here Paul thinks about his identity before he was a Christian, and that identity gave him a sense. I was, I, I, had, I, I had everything done to me that the law specified. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was raised in a Jewish context. In fact, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. That means he could speak Hebrew. He was born in Tarsus, which is now southern Turkey, where m- most of the Jews spoke Greek. But Paul, his parents, took him to Jerusalem. They raised him under a great teacher named Gamaliel, and he could speak Hebrew, the ancient Jewish language. A lot of Hebrew rabbis would say, what was the language that Adam and Eve spoke in the garden? Gotta be in Hebrew. What's the language we're all going to speak in heaven? It's gotta be Hebrew, right? Hebrew is the divine language. And Paul says, I had that. One of the things that happened on that Damascus road that humbled Paul was he realized that being Jewish had given him privileges, but he was a sinner like the Gentiles he despised, and he needed a savior. Or Titus 3.3. This is very interesting. Listen to the personal pronoun. Titus 3.3. We too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, Hateful, detesting one another. Now you might be thinking, like, okay, when's he going to get to racism? <laughs> These are, this is groundwork. This is biblical groundwork. Paul here, after his conversion, as Paul began to think of himself, he had thought of himself as superior to Gentiles. He was just like Peter. Remember Peter on the rooftop in Joppa, and he's he's going up there to pray at the ninth hour. And he sees a vision, uh, uh, a huge cloth let down from heaven with all kinds of animals in it. Not cuddly, furry types of animals that some of us love. You know, like, well, I, like I actually, I like hedgehogs. I love hedgehogs. The Andrew Fuller Center, where I, we have a, a study center at Southern, its symbol is a hedgehog. I won't go into details of that. You can ask me privately, why a hedgehog? I love hedgehogs. And um, unclean animals were in there. It came down three times, and Peter heard these words, eat, rise and eat. Lord, I've never eaten an unclean animal. He's a Jew. The pagans eat unclean animals, you know, like shrimp and mussels and who knows what. But I'm a Jew. I've kept kosher. Never a piece of pork or ham or bacon never crossed my lips. What God has made clean, you should not call unclean. And then there's a knock on the door of the house he's on. He's on a flat rooftop, typical Palestinian house. And there's a Gentile there, a Roman soldier with two servants who are probably Romans. Our master, Cornelius, has asked you to come and see us. He has had a vision. Send for Peter. He's living in Joppa with a tanner. That's interesting because tanners were generally thought of as unclean. (laughs) So here's Peter. I don't eat unclean food, but he's actually staying in the house of a tanner who is thought by Jewish law to be unclean. There's an irony there. Anyway, Peter goes off. And he witnesses the most remarkable thing that day. He sees the Spirit of God fall upon these Gentiles. And he realizes God is no respecter of persons. That's the way the KGV puts it. It's great. When he gets back to Jerusalem and he has to tell the Jerusalem, what on earth are you doing, Peter? You went into the house of a Gentile and you ate with them. If God has given them the Holy Spirit, who am I to make a differentiation between Jew and Gentile? That was Paul. And then his conversion took place. And he realized that he, like these Gentiles, was a sinner in need of a savior. One final text that links, links to the uh, the issue of common creaturehood, common sinnerhood. James chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. No one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With the tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people made in God's likeness. So we have a shared creaturehood. We have a shared sinnerhood. By the way, let me veer off very quickly. When you reject the idea that there is a shared creaturehood as well as a shared Sinnerhood, it's not surprising that as this works out politically in a society, you get all kinds of possible atrocities. Before Nazi Germany in the 1930s walked down a road that of infamy, of the destruction of the Jews in Europe, as well as other undesirables, gypsies, slavs, etc., there had been a rejection large-scale rejection in many quarters of German society of the scriptures, of the idea that we are all made in the image of God, that we are all sinners. And there obviously was then this idea that developed of Aryan superiority. Back in the, uh, again, I'm picking up a lot of things I could develop at length. I'm keeping watch on my time. I got 15 minutes, right? Back in the time of the French Revolution, when the French Revolution descended into a, 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 a vehicle of terror, the killing of men and women indiscriminately, uh, a Baptist leader in Britain named Robert Hall said that the ideological basis of the revolution was its rejection of Christianity. And he said this, atheism is an inhuman, bloody, ferocious system. First, its object is to dethrone God. Its next is to destroy man. When the gospel and Christianity are forgotten in a nation or rejected in a nation, it doesn't spell well for that nation long term. In some ways, it's not surprising that Germany went the way it did because for at least a hundred or more years, there had been the destruction of biblical Christianity in its seminaries. We have a shared creaturehood, a shared sinnerhood, and we have a shared Savior. 1 John 2.2, 2, Jesus Christ, the righteous, one, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. John 1, 29. the greatest of all the prophets is John the Baptist, right? I don't know if you ever think of that. Jesus said that. He is the greatest of all the prophets. He could, When he saw Jesus at the time of the opening of our Lord's ministry, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not just the sin of Jews or the sin of Gentiles, the sin of all peoples are found upon him at the cross. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. You might turn to that because this is a very interesting passage that Paul builds upon the phrase all. He wants his readers to pray for all people, and he gives a number of arguments, and you need to listen to the word all, 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 7. I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving be made for all, for kings, all those in our authority, so we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good. And it pleases God, our Savior, who wants all to, come, to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. For there is one God a mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. For this I was appointed a herald, an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Take us too long to go into the larger background, but... Suffice it to say that Paul here is dealing with an era in, uh, at, at Ephesus. He wants Timothy to deal with it. The era seems to have been that we shouldn't pray for certain types of people. They can't be saved. And Paul, no, no, you need to pray for all. Why is it that we are to pray for all? Because God wants all to be saved. You'll need to come to the morning sessions on Micah, to find out why that is. Because at the heart of God is compassion for sinners. Not one person in this room, even that little child there, deserves salvation. Not one person in this room within my hearing merits salvation by a lifetime of good works. We're supposed to be zealous for good works. They will not avail you. What avails us is we have a God. He's made every human being in his image, and he loves human beings. God desires all to be saved. How do we know that? He sent one man, Jesus Christ, to die for all. Now, I'm a Calvinist. (laughs) So you might, I'm not, (laughs) do I have two or three more hours (laughs) to go and how to figure out, how do I affirm that and affirm my Calvinism? Oh, that's off to the side at this point. I can affirm there is a sense in which Christ's death is sufficient for all. That's how I know God loves all. When he hung on that cross, he hung on the cross for all. And he sent Paul to the Gentiles. That's the big division in Jewish mind. There's Jews and there's Gentiles. Just read Jonah. We looked at Jonah this morning. What was Jonah's big beef? Like, it can't be serious, God. You love these Assyrians. Like, don't you know what they're like? You know, when they come into a nation, we talked about this morning, they chop people's heads off, decapitate all the leaders, pile them in piles. And then they do that disgraceful thing of flaying people alive, skinning off their skin, taking the skin of human beings back to the walls of Nineveh and pasting them up on the outside. You know, can you imagine? Like, uh, hey, we're going to, where, where are we going to go today? We're going to go for a drive into the big city. <laughs> which for us is Toronto, can you imagine, you know, driving along the QEW or the 401, and you've got a long, you know those barriers they put up, sound barriers, and human skins on those? Like, God, (laughs) like, is there no limit to your love? This becomes a great theme of Paul. Paul picks it up in a number of places. Uh, Galatians 3.28, there is no Jew or Greek. Slave or free, male or female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. He's talking here soteriologically. He's talking about salvation. We, of course, there's, <laughs> I mean, don't use that verse to defend transgenderism. Of course, there's differences between men and women. But we all are human beings who come on the same, we're all made in the image of God. We all have a fallenness, same fallenness, and we all need a common Savior. Two more texts. And I'm in my time. At Colossians 3.11. In Christ there is not Greek nor Jew, circumcision or uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free. And he, Paul, Paul uses that kind of phrase about four or five times. But here he adds two different groups, barbarians. Barbarian is a Greek term. It's barbaros. And the Greeks developed that idea when they first began to colonize the eastern Mediterranean. Very quickly, you're going to get a potted view of Greek history. Uh, There was a great Greek civilization between 1400 and about 1100. It's known as the Minoan civilization. It collapsed from 1100 to 800. There's the Greek Dark Ages. They lost urban life. They lost literacy. And then they recover it, and they begin to colonize uh, both the eastern and western Mediterranean. Uh, They built colonies, like Marseille is a Greek colony. Southern Italy, why are southern Italians quite different from northern Italians? Because southern Italian roots genetically and DNA and all that go back to the Greeks. They're all Greeks in their roots. And the Greeks also began to colonize up around the Black Sea, both the northern shore, Crimea. Some of us who followed the Ukraine war know some of these places now, Mariupol and these places on the shore there. And uh, the Greeks encountered all kinds of people. you know, Celts, the Celtic people in France, uh, Sicilians who were there, native people, Egyptians, with their 2,000-year-old civilization, remarkable culture. As far as the C- Greeks are concerned, they're all barbaroi. Why? Because they can't speak Greek. You're all, uh, bar- barbaros is an onomatopoeic word. It's, sound, it's supposed to imitate what it means, barbaros, you know, ba-ba-ba-ba-ba. When the Greeks listened to these people, speak, it sounded like a ba-ba-ba. <laughs> these people can't speak proper language. We speak proper language. They're, they're all barbarians. It doesn't mean culture. There was one people group they met, and they really were disgusted by them, the Scythians. The Scythians live in the Crimea which has also been in the news, right? They've not left a written record. So the only record we've got is mostly the Greeks, what the Greeks said of them. Everybody knew the Scythians were just brutal people. When they killed people in battle, they would decapitate them. Maybe they learned that from the Assyrians. Then they would take the heads back to camp. This isn't funny, actually. And they'd scoop out what's in here, clean off the hair, get rid of the skin, and then slice it right here. And what you've got here is a drinking cup. That's what the Greeks said. We have no idea if the Scythians did that. That's what the Greeks tell us they did, but we've got no idea. The point is, when anybody read this, Colossians 3.11, you can't can't be serious. Can those people actually be saved? No, 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 no. Paul, (laughs) why don't we just drop off Scythian? These are men and women in the image of God. All made by one living God. All fallen, all needing a savior. Now, one last question. Is this a gospel issue? Can you be a racist and be a Christian? I'm gonna confess, this is a tough one. But I'm gonna read a passage and I'll leave it with you. You can think about it. It's in Galatians. Galatians chapter two and it's verse 11 to 14. And uh Peter, right, Peter was on the rooftop. Nothing gone clean, nothing clean. He goes to the home of Cornelius, Roman centurion, sees what go- sees the spirit fall on them. And he realizes God is not a respecter of persons. That probably happened somewhere around 4041 AD. About 5 years later, He's in Antioch, and uh, he's eating with some Gentile believers. And some brothers come from Jerusalem who don't believe you shouldn't eat with a Gentile unless he's gone through the whole ritual of becoming a Jew. So we read Galatians 2.11. When Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood self-content. Condemned, for until certain people came from James, I won't get into, that's a big question. Uh, Did they actually come from the Apostle James, our Lord's half-brother? I I think there's indication in the text they claim to come from James, but anyway, that's off to the side. He used to eat with the Gentiles, but after they came, he drew back and kept himself separate for fear of the circumcision faction. And the other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy. So even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. When I saw that they were not acting consistently with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? If you're eating, (laughs) you're eating ham sandwiches, you know, with the Gentiles, and suddenly some of these fastidious Jews come from Jerusalem who are oppressing believers And you then pull back and tell them we can't eat ham sandwiches anymore. Like, you're a hypocrite. But what catches my attention here, you are not walking according to the truth of the gospel. Now, is Peter saved? I think, of course he is. Is this a first-class salvation issue? In one sense, no. Is it a mere secondary issue? Is it like, okay, hey, you baptize babies I don't. I'm a a, a Baptist. I don't believe in baptizing babies. Or you believe in the exercise of glossolalia in the public assembly. Well, I'm not a Pentecostal, so I don't necessarily believe that. Those are differences on secondary issues. Is making a distinction on race like that? Or is it cutting to the gospel? Peter is saved. Paul doesn't say he's not. But he says, you are not walking according to the truth of the gospel. So the issue of race and racism, if you make distinctions between human beings on the basis of their skin color or their ethnicity, that is sin. It's not a difference of, hey, (laughs) I'm a Baptist, (laughs) you're a Pado baptist we've both got our convictions. In glory, we will all find out how it works out. But this is sin. How dire a sin. Does it threaten your salvation? I can't say that. But it is sin before a holy God. Because Christ has received that man or woman. They are in the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. They now, now have a new self, a new identity in Jesus, and you're making a distinction on race or ethnicity? You're sinning, and you're a hypocrite. So it's a serious matter. Well, let me end here. I could go on. What I wanted to do here was really lay out biblical ideas on how we think about these subjects. And as I said, we could spend a lot of time talking about Western culture in particular. Um, I do think, and I've studied our history a lot, uh, Western history, I think we have failed as evangelicals. And there's much that we need to kind of think about and try to repair etc but that that's a whole course
0: one of my favorite parts of listening to Michael Haken is that he has the ability to share so much relevant information about so many different topics all at the same time we were laughing as we prepared this episode about the number of times he unofficially asked us to stop the clock so that he could go on what he calls a little rabbit trail while well, the seminar was more focused on the history of race and color, especially in the early church, I took the opportunity during our Q&A chat to dive deeper into how racism has played out in today's culture, and I appreciate that Dr. Haken has so much insight into how we can biblically live our lives. Enjoy. Dr. Haken, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to be with us here at MBC, for speaking uh, and sharing about race and color in church history and just laying out the way that the Bible is so clear about God's love for all people. Um, (laughs) I've, you know, humorously, I've got some questions about Calvinism that might take two or three days or maybe a (laughs) semester course to take with you at some point, but I, I just loved that you pointed out so clearly across the board, God's deep desire for all people to know him uh, and it doesn't matter ethnicity or skin color uh, and so thank you for that and for being willing to just chat and and talk today I really appreciate that um, for our podcast listeners you'll hear that I've got a bit of a sore throat I'm getting over a cold so uh, that'll be a fun thing that I get to kind of try to figure out in post-production how to make myself sound like a normal person but um, I just I want to dive right in I know that on Monday night, uh, a lot of our our audience uh, who were here with us really wanted to ask practical questions. And one of them, the first one that I really appreciated your answer to, was about historic racism and what do we do about it now? And you talked a little bit about your work at SBTs Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Could you kind of walk us through what is that like as someone who lives in the here and now? I'm I'm present in 2022. Um, you know, my family has some French, English, Irish, all sorts of roots. Somewhere back there, I, I have an ancestor who bears responsibility for things that we would call historic racism, like slavery. Do I have responsibility to deal with that now? What do I do with that?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. And I think it's one that uh, obviously is uh, uh, to the fore, uh, especially you know, in, uh, both in Canada and the United States, with, uh, with in the States with the whole issue of slavery. And, uh, you know, the African-American descendants of slaves. And that's only a few generations uh, going back. Um, here in Canada, uh, the, while slavery was legal uh, up until 1833 in uh, what we, uh, you know, would have been eastern Canada, um, it really was not a major issue in the way that it had been in the States. But we nonetheless do have the whole relationship with the indigenous people. Mm-hmm. And how do we deal with uh, basically... Uh, systemic wrongs that were done to those people by, uh, you know, our forebears, and uh, so it's um, it's a it's a pretty volatile issue, a volatile question. Um, you know, there are some who are arguing for you know reparations, but I think I think one thing that is maybe very very helpful is. Um, so when we think about, for instance, the story of Zacchaeus, uh, the little man who was up in the tree, couldn't see Christ, and then comes down and is basically converted. And one of the things he, he, that marks his conversion is that he engages in restitution. Um, it's not what we would describe as reparations, but he basically is going to make right the injustice that he has done on a systematic manner in terms of uh, his tax collecting. Right. And at that point, Jesus says, "You know, salvation has come to this home." And I think that there is a place for restitution uh, for societal and uh, systematic evil that has been done to various people groups in the past. And obviously, I mean, the, you know, how does this practically work out? There's, there's got to be a lot of wisdom in you know, thinking this through. It, it's not simply throwing money at people mm-hmm. because we've seen contexts where you know that that has happened, and that. Doesn't always bring about the the desired results. It can cause different problems. It can in can cause yeah, it can cause very very different problems. But I think um, I think the, a, a key step has to be a, a recognition that there were in place in our Canadian or American societies laws on the books that basically uh, were gross violations. Of uh, human dignity mm. and um, prevented human flourishing and um how do how do we then go about d- dealing with it but that's a that's a first step yeah and uh it it may involve uh financial, but there may be other things that uh, need to be rectified that are still going on today um, uh, in certain
0: ways. you talked about it Sbts. Uh, during the Q&A on Monday night, making space in terms of scholarships and spaces available for African-American students to say, you know, although SPTS was founded on or by folks who own slaves, uh, you know, we are making space as a way to apologize and to make sure that we are recognizing that wrong. And, you know, I I think there's something to be said about uh, recognizing that reparations or reconciliation can happen not just in, Financial terms But also in relational terms um, And I think about Zacchaeus It's, it's interesting He he recognized his own sin And took care of his own actions And one thing I wrestle with is As a 30-ish year old guy In 2022 um, The sins of my forebearers My ancestors Some of them I don't even know And uh, I know that there are people Who <laughs> will just continue to To feel like they need to Constantly apologize And say sorry And it it almost feels like it will never be enough. And in some senses it won't ever be enough because sin is a problem, right? Sin sin tears people apart from right relationship. Um, Do you, I, and I guess maybe I'm moving towards this this question of systemic racism. You mentioned the word, and I know that that's a buzzword nowadays. Mm-hmm. People say, you know, oh, systemic racism. What is that? You know, if, if I'm being individually racist, uh, that's one thing. But if an organization or a system is being racist, then it's systemic racism. Do we have a hope, do you think, of even being able to stop systemic racism? Is it a problem? I think maybe systemic sin is a is a phrase you used the other day that I was interested in hearing more about.
1: Yeah, I, th-
2: <clears throat> I think the reality is this, and I think that evangelicals, because of the the nature of the gospel, that is that men and women individually have to embrace Christ. Hmm. Um, and there is uh, in, let me go back a little bit, there is in Western, one of the, the defining marks of Western culture that would distinguish it, for instance, from, say, Latin American cultures, or Muslim cultures <clears throat> or East Asian or South Asian cultures is the 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 very high premium that we place on the individual hmm. and individualism. And um, if you look at, track through history, it's probably in the twelfth, thirteenth century in Western Europe that individualism starts to become a mark of this this culture that we know as Western civilization. Um the Reformation heightens that. Hmm. Because for Luther and the Reformers, what was vital was that you had embraced the gospel, not that you were part of this larger community, and that because you had been baptized into this larger community, therefore your ultimate future, that is heaven, was guaranteed, but rather have you personally repented of your sins? And this is becoming, you know, even more exacerbated. um, That kind of emphasis on the individual—that's a very good emphasis. It's a biblical emphasis, but it becomes even more uh, emphatic in the in the in the in the 18th century, with both the Enlightenment, which uh, is summed up in some ways by Immanuel Kant, saying, "You need to dare to think for yourself." and the rejection of tradition, the rejection of this is the way our community has done it. No, no, you need to think for yourself. And so when you come down to the present day, then individualism is so rampant in our culture. And when you start to talk to, to people about systemic sin... Well, no, 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 no. I'm. I, I wasn't there. I didn't do any of those things. They're not my problem. They're not my. They're, they're, I can't repent for my forbear sins. Um, and but it's a failure to recognize. I think um, that our lives are deeply interwoven. They're deeply interwoven with the past, but they're also deeply interwoven with the, the larger society in, in in which we live. And um, uh, Like it or not, um, there are the ills of our society that we're deeply concerned about, things like, say, uh, abortion, um, etc. Um, While we ourselves are opposed to abortion as Christians, um, and... You know, do all that we can to to oppose it. Nonetheless, our finances, for instance, mm. I was this is the example I was using, are held in banks. We're investing in companies, and who knows what they're investing in? I mean, one of the things I'm concerned about is the whole area of, you know, violence. And um, uh, it, it's one thing to to say, you know, our government is about to pass a bill here in Canada called C-21, which limits the availability of handguns. But are there arms manufacturers in Canada or in the United States? Mm-hmm. And to what degree, uh, if, I, if I'm banking with certain banks or investing in certain companies, are they linked to major arms manufacturers? And so th- there is a sense in which, yes, I, I didn't, I did not do these sins, but I'm part of Canadian society, and Canadian society um, is a sinful, idolatrous society. And um, some of that idolatry and sin uh, has taken the form of of, 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 of racial discrimination, hmm. uh, because of my my father's background being Middle Eastern. I'm very conscious that we and the media have, you know, fostered this, but we've got this picture of, of Muslims. As, uh, you know, every time we see a woman in a, um, a hijab um, or an akib, uh, you know, the niqab, uh, they're, they're a potential terrorist. And uh, I think we fail to realize that for many of these men and women, Um, they want, they want, they want the same as we want out of life, a peaceful, uh, family life. Mm. Um, but we have these stereotypes and, um, we've, we, you know, that that there's, there is a systemic element to to all of that. And, um, uh,
0: so anyway. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Even as you were saying that, I've, I've always, uh. My family grew up watching The Sound of Music, and uh, it it struck me sometimes how hijabs and the the outfits that a nun might wear yes. look remarkably similar, yes, uh, but belong to two different religions, yes. Um, and I thought, hmm, that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, my aunt was a nun, and so she didn't wear a, a habit uh, like that. So I didn't know her as like the one nun I knew in my life personally didn't wear a habit. But I I've always thought, oh, that's so interesting that we've got these similarities, and yet perhaps perpetuated by media and stereotypes, we can say one of these is good and one of these is not, uh, which is very interesting. The flip side in some senses to systemic racism, this word privilege is also a word that's used quite a bit these days um, and particularly white privilege. Um, You know, I'm a, for podcast listeners who can't see me, I'm a white man, uh, heterosexual male, grew up in a solidly middle class family I bear the marks of a lot of privilege um, and that that comes with, and I, I would acknowledge it comes with a lot of things. I had the, uh, the fortunate upbringing to live in a very multicultural neighborhood in Toronto, uh, in North Etobicoke. Rexdale is kind of the name of that community uh, and I loved it, right? My favorite food is Indian food because that was the food that was kind of available and I loved eating that. I had a lot of friends from a lot of different backgrounds uh, and now that I live in Muskoka with my family, Uh, there is a distinct lack of diversity in this neighborhood, uh, that I live in. And that's, it's something I note. It's not a bad thing necessarily, but, uh, I consider both of those things to be privileges. I have all these things that, yes, it seems gives me a leg up in some senses, but also the, the joy of knowing so many diverse people from so many backgrounds in, in the sense that people say white privilege or privilege is bad nowadays is there any hope to say, no, it's okay to use the things that we've, we've been given, the advantages we've been given for the good of other people? Is that an encouragement, or should I just be shying away from even talking about privilege altogether as a white man? Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, the, the, the
2: word privilege, I mean, the, the reality is that uh, anybody growing up in a Western culture is privileged. Right. Uh, whatever your ethnic, ethnic, ethnic background, and this was something that has been born upon me, In in, uh, 1955, when I was two years old, my father made a decision not to return to Iraq, Uh, but he was born in Kirkuk in Iraq and um, had every plan to go back to Iraq, but then there was a coup that overthrew the monarchy and established what becomes the Ba'athist regime, Mm -hmm. of which Saddam Hussein is the last uh, political representative. Um, And I I realized... Um, despite the the experience that I had of various ra- elements of racial discrimination against somebody from the Middle East, nonetheless I was in a privileged position just by mm. being in the West. Mm. Anybody living in the West has as a privilege. Um, you know, you compare you to living, say, in various urban settings in the world, uh, slum settings you, you can think of, and um. Uh, those those privileges are, are are just part and parcel of of Western culture, Western civilization, without being just simply white privilege. Um, and with privilege comes responsibilities, as mm. as you're, you're saying. And um, uh, I think there is a reality that we as Westerners, I mean, you know, here in Muskoka, I mean, you're. If you think about the entirety of the world, I mean, we're among the top. 10 15% in terms of uh, lifestyle, income, all of income, it, yeah. et cetera. And um, you may not feel that, you know, compared comparatively to some very, very wealthy individuals in our society. But if you look at it from a, a global perspective, and um, privilege uh, brings with it then responsibilities to use that. To recognize, I am privileged. I grew up in the West. I grew up in a free country called Canada. I have opportunities here uh, in the early 21st century. It's not simply white people who have those privileges. Um, Now, historically, if we go back, say, to the 1920s, 1950s, you know, when my my father came to Canada, sorry, came to uh, England in the probably around 1949, 1950, um, uh, he made every effort to fit in, to blend into Western culture, uh, because he, I think he probably recognized that there were disadvantages to being a, bearing a Muslim name from Iraq, um, etc. And uh, But we've society has significantly changed uh from uh, that era um especially can- canada and um I-, I think it's very at least from my vantage point um i think the 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 whole idea that somehow white individuals uh say in downtown toronto you grew up in toronto yeah. uh have greater privileges than say people from east asia south asia um, or Muslim societies. Um, it, I mean, there, there, there obviously is still elements of uh, racial, racial prejudice there, but nonetheless, I think um, just living here you know, gives us privileges
0: and responsibilities. Outside of systemic racism, uh, when we encounter things in the day-to-day that don't look right, um, do you feel as Christians or sorry, maybe I'll make a statement and then ask a question. You know, we're, we're told in Corinthians that we're not to to judge outside of the church and, and all of that, right? We're to advocate for good things, but within the church, we're to call each other to faithfulness. Um, do we, if we see what we perceive to be racism in the church, do we just call it out as racism? Do you think that there's, um, you know, that, that is a, big scary word a lot nowadays. Like if I if I were to call someone a racist, um, it would be akin to calling someone a bigot or uh, a lot of other words that kind of, and especially in what we feel is like a cancel culture nowadays, right? If you're this, you're done. There's no more space for you. Um, is there a healthy way to call out what might be perceived as racism or just is racism in the church? Uh, it's a sin that sometimes we don't talk about, you know, we're very good at calling out other sins, but not always racism. We can say, Oh, we're working to be better at that, but we don't call it out. And I know that there's a lot of people out there who are saying, no, the church needs to call out racism. We need to call this out and acknowledge it. Not only the historic racism, but stuff that's still happening now. Um, And I guess I'm moving towards a discussion of what I think has been termed affirmative action in some cases. Um, You know, our, our lineup, for speakers here at NBC in 2022, on the whole, looks fairly white. Um, And next year, we've got a lineup that's fairly diverse. We've got someone coming from, uh, you know, I think three different continents, and those who are coming even from North America are not necessarily all white skin toned. Um, And it was something that guests noticed this year. Um, They might not necessarily know that you've got Kurdish background, (laughs) right? And so you're someone who might appear as white on the outside. Sure. this this kind of thought that we need to diversify the things we do. I think there's such beauty and diversity in the church, right? The kingdom of God in heaven is going to be filled with diversity. And there's going to be people there that I don't recognize now as Christians. I think that I'm going to be surprised when I get there. We're all going to be worshiping the same Lord and savior. We're going to be too busy doing that to be too concerned about much else. I think, um, do we have a responsibility to try to diversify in all of these things, or should we let things happen as they go? I'm, I'm kind of, throwing that out there just for your thoughts on diversity as opposed to let's not worry about it and just let what happens happens. How much should we be working towards that versus letting it happen on its own?
2: Yeah, I think think that um, a place like NBC definitely should be involved in affirmative action in the sense of um, you are inviting people from various parts of Canada. I mean, uh, you know, obviously, we we went through the COVID era uh, period there, where we were limited in whom we could invite. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, given, you know, that we are, you're not, you're not simply looking at uh, having speakers from Huntsville, Gravenhurst, Bracebridge, etc., but you're inviting them from a distance, and I. I think it's very helpful, given the fact that there is a diversity of people who come here. That uh, there are gifted uh, men and women from uh, <clears throat> South Asian, East Asian, um, African backgrounds, um, and I think I think there should be um, uh, these these sorts of individuals should be invited. Um, if you're in a scenario, and I'm sure there are contexts in in North America where this is the case. Uh, where uh, your community is 90% one ethnicity um, and your um, funding, et cetera, et cetera, and the nature of what you're doing restricts you to inviting people from that area, then it shouldn't be surprising that you know, 90% of the people who are seen publicly in leading worship, in, in uh, speaking and teaching are of that ethnicity, but that isn't the case here with with NBC. Um, and I, I do think, you know, large urban churches, uh, should make an attempt to, to, um, uh, represent the sort of ethnicity that is found in their, in their areas. Uh, and I don't think, I don't think it, 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 it it's helpful to, to fall back and say, well, you know, it, it, the 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 various ethnicities that might be in this area uh, you know they, uh, they, 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 they don't they, they, they don't have the people who we could bring forward mm. into leadership well, then you need you need you need to then you need to be trying to find men and women in this area who are gifted, who have those gifts from the Lord and uh,
0: mentor them, train them and train them, yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's a there's a book. I'm gonna get the title wrong offhand. I can probably put it in the show notes or something. Jesus, I think it's called Jesus isn't colorblind. And there's been this idea that colorblindness is okay. You know, we don't I don't see color. Um, and I've I've really I've read a little bit on this, and I've I've really enjoyed the idea that to say I'm colorblind actually removes a beautiful element of who mm, people are. Yes. Right? To say I'm colorblind means I don't see any color. Yeah. And I can understand the underlying sympathetic notion behind I don't see color but it means you're removing a beautiful part of the diversity of who people are. Um, And so, no, it's, and again, in the local church setting, it can be really hard. I think about small towns in Ontario or Alberta or Alabama, where, like you said, 90% of people are one ethnicity or, or represent a people group. It can be hard, but, You know, certainly at NBC, we're aware that we've got a huge diversity of guests who are coming here and it's exciting for us. We've got groups from all sorts of different churches uh, that are booking here, both in the summer to come up as groups and just to be together, but also in the off season as church rental groups. We want to be representative of that. And I I am very curious to see how God will continue to work that in a world that is becoming increasingly globally connected. Which has goods and bads, right? We've just gotten through two years of a very globally connected pandemic, uh, that I'm sure everybody wished, you know, airplanes didn't move quite so fast over the last two years. <laughs> um, but yeah, we're my hope and my my prayer is that we move forward with best intentions for all of this. Um, thank you so much for your time today. I know that you're my a pleasure. very busy man doing a lot of busy things. My pleasure. And I just really appreciate that you've brought a little bit of extra sauce to what we've been learning. So thank you. My pleasure. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this week's episode of Transforming Culture. Thank you to Dr. Haken for bringing so much wisdom and historical perspective to this week's conversation. Next Monday, we have Scotty Smith talking to us about social media, and I really would, like every other episode we've released, commend that talk to you. All our speakers bring so much wise counsel. You can find that episode here next Monday morning. As always, if you've enjoyed listening to today's episodes, please share it with a friend, subscribe on your favorite podcast app, or give us a like on social media. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Transforming Culture is a production of Muskoka Bible Center. It's hosted and produced by Luke LaRock. Editing, sound design, and mixing by Abhishek Varghese. Audio and technical support from Charles West and the Summer 2022 AV team. The theme song is Citizens by John Guerra. Graphic design by Christina Tabacle Holtz. We'll see you next Monday for our next episode of Transforming Culture. a city.